And it happened that on one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up to him and they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you a question also, and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine growers sent him away empty-handed, having beaten him. And he proceeded to send another slave. And when they beat him also and treated him shamefully, they sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third. And this one also they wounded and cast out. Now the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they were reasoning with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, May it never be! But when Jesus looked at them, he said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, but they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. Bow with me in prayer. Father, as we come before your word, as we sit under your authority, we recognize that you are the creator of the universe. We praise you, Lord, that you have allowed us to know who you are, that you have revealed yourself so clearly in your word. And as we bow this morning and worship before you and your word, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, help us to understand these words. Help me to be clear as I speak this morning. May hearts be opened. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So it's a general maxim of life that all consequences have, all actions have consequence to them. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. I'm not a physicist, but I know this because I punched my older brother once and there, there was a reaction. If I were to start a fight with a Marine, I know for a fact I would lose. I am not a fighter. I was not built that way. I would be soundly beaten. When a man gets drunk and he gets behind the wheel of a car, we know the consequences of those actions. There are consequences for everything in life, whether small or large, from breathing, breathing in a particular location, from lying, everything all the way up to murder. For instance, I work as manager at an ice cream shop. I was hired to run the ice cream shop in an efficient way to ensure the ice cream and the customers are served in a, a fashion that is safe and in an environment that is clean with the expectation that the owner of the company could come in at any time and his expectations ought to be met. But if he were to come in and find those expectations being thwarted, what should my thought process be as the manager, the steward of that location? Should I expect that I'm going to be rewarded as a consequence of my action and disobedience? Or is there going to be a visceral reaction and I will be replaced as manager of that location? How about a biblical example? Think of Saul. Saul was chosen 
by the Lord in the Old Testament to be the king of Israel. And he led the people of Israel in there were moments of faithfulness in his life where he was filled with the Spirit, even prophesied. But there came a time in his life where it got to his head. In 1 Samuel 13, he had been commanded to wait for Samuel as, as the judge elected by God, chosen by God to be the judge over his people. And he had been commanded to wait before attacking the Philistines so that Samuel could come and pray over the army, offer a sacrifice and a blessing from Yahweh on the Israelite army. Well, Saul waited and he waited and decided, well, you know, it, it'll be okay. We'll just go without him. I'm the, I'm the king. I kind of got the final word on this, right? So he offers the sacrifice, and what happens? His line is cut off. There's an absolute replacement of Saul's line in Israel. Not a single one of them is left. And David is brought in as a man after God's own heart to lead the people of Israel. The passage we're in, the, in this morning is similar, but instead of a king, we have religious leaders and vine growers. And instead of a nation, we have a vineyard. This passage is, is an analogical parable against the leaders of Jerusalem for rejecting God's authority over his own people and ultimately for what they would do just a few chapters later in killing the Son of God. It is, in essence, a very clear picture of Christ's authority and a declaration that rejection of God's authority demands severe consequences. Death and destruction. Just a few notes on where we are in, in Luke as we dive into this passage, just to kind of set up this context. We're in the middle of Passion Week. Jesus had just had his triumphal entry. We're now in the middle of the week where just a few days later, Jesus will be crucified. So keep in mind as we, as we walk through this passage that immediately preceding this confrontation with the religious leaders was the triumphal entry of Christ. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and the people are all praising him. And then he cleanses the temple immediately preceding this confrontation. And so here in chapter 20, the scribes, the high priests, the elders of the people are questioning him on what gives him the right or the authority to do these things. Bear in mind as well that all throughout Luke's gospel, all the way back to chapter 2, when the angel announces to Mary that she's going to give birth to Jesus, there's an expectation that he's going to die. In Luke 2.35, Mary is told that a sword would pierce her soul. And so there has been this expectation from chapter 2 onward till now and beyond that Jesus will die. And that grows clearer and clearer as the gospel progresses. Remember also, keep this in mind, Luke's purpose in writing this gospel is to provide his readers with an accurate and reliable account of the life and ministry of Jesus so that they could have assurance of the reliability of the gospel he's presenting or the gospel they've heard. Keep in mind as well that in chapter 9, all the way since chapter 9, verse 51, the focus has shifted from just the earthly ministry of Jesus around Israel in various regions to Jesus now is pointing his face toward going to Jerusalem. The last 10 chapters of this book, Luke has been devoting to just this portion of Jesus' ministry as he is walking to Jerusalem. He knows where he's going. He knows what's going to happen. And this isn't a long period of time. It's 10 chapters for us. But for Jesus, it's a week at most. Two weeks, maybe. As he's walking to Jerusalem for the Passover, he knows what's coming. And then there's the triumphal entry. That glorious scene of Jesus riding into Jerusalem as, as the pictured king, foreshadowing what he will do in the millennium. 
But then, middle of the week, and the leaders of the people are approaching him of one mind, which is an indication that something big is about to happen. Because the Jewish leaders of the day were not a unified group. The scribes and Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the high priests, they did not get along very well. They had theological differences, but then they had political differences as well. Something big is about to happen. So when you read there in verse 1 of chapter 20, it happened that on one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him. That's Luke keying us into something big is about to happen. Pay attention. If they all got together for this, if they're unified on this in confronting Jesus together, pay attention. It's almost like a bad joke. Like a Baptist preacher, a Jewish rabbi, and a Catholic priest walk into a bar, the bartender says, what is this, a joke? Yeah. It's even more sudden than that in the text. The word for they approached him, or they came up to him, has a suddenness to it. Jesus is preaching, and then as he turns from one direction back to the other, they're there. It's not just a group of them suddenly coming. They're suddenly in front of him. They want his full attention. But something big is about to happen when they do this. This passage warns, then, of the horrific consequences for those who choose not to accept the authority of God by rejecting his message given through his servants, and especially of rejecting his son, culminating in judgment and destruction for their rebellion. And specifically, Luke here is outlining two dialogues that demonstrate the ultimate authority of Jesus from redemptive history. Two dialogues that demonstrate the ultimate authority of Jesus from redemptive history. The first is this dialogue with the religious leaders in verses 1 through 8. And so as he's teaching and proclaiming the gospel on the Temple Mount, we have no reason to think this is any different from the message he's been proclaiming the last three years of his ministry on, on earth. We have no reason to believe that this is any different in content from what the apostles would then be sent out to preach in the book of Acts. And then there's this group of Jewish leaders who suddenly show up and they begin to question him concerning his authority. Listen to what they ask. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things or who is the one who gave you this authority. It's more of a demand than a question. Tell us this. We're the religious leaders of this day. Who are you? What kind of authority is this you're claiming? Who do you think you are? And this is a motley group of people. Like I said, they're not normally unified like this. The chief priests were the temple officials. They were the ones that, you know, just ten verses previous, Jesus had kicked out their money-making schemers. Whipped them. Kicked them out of the temple mount. The scribes were a mixture of both Pharisees and, and, and legalists. They were those who knew the Old Testament law so well. Which is ironic because they'd know the answer to their own question if they were actually paying attention. And the elders were probably lay leaders or, or uh, Jewish political leaders from around the city or around the country who were in, in town, in Jerusalem at that point for the Passover. So this is just a, a motley group of people who are like, this is trouble. He's claiming authority that we want. This is ours. What are we going to do about this? If we don't unify around this... He's going to kick us out. Something bad's going to happen. And so they ask him these questions. They, they're trying to trap him. All through Passion Week, they do this. And so they're asking him two very pointed questions, and it's almost like Luke is intending his readers to have a sort of a face palm moment. These are the leaders of Israel, and they don't know the answers to this question? After three years, they're still trying to trap him with questions like this? They should know better. Every time they've tried to trap this man in the last three years, he's either been able to turn the question back on them or show them how much they ought to be embarrassed of that question from Scripture. They've not yet learned their lesson 
or they are just so blinded by their own arrogance that they could not see it. The first question is, what kind of authority is this that you're claiming? Who do you think you are? Well, they knew this. They've asked him this before, and Jesus answered them, both in his action and in his word. Back in Luke 5 is the story of the man who was let down through the roof of a home so that Jesus would heal him. And rather than heal him, Jesus forgives his sins. And the Pharisees and the leaders of the day that are present are like, you can't do that. God's the only one who can do that. He's like, just to prove to you that I can do that, get up and walk. And he does. They know who this man is. They know what kind of authority he has. They know what kind of authority he's claiming. And yet they're still trying to deny it. Luke 7, Jesus forgives the sin of a well-known immoral woman in town. And the implication from the passage is very clear. This man is clearly claiming to have divine authority. That is the kind of authority he has. There's no question on this. Which then answers their second question. What source? Where do you get it? It's from God. It's obvious. And so, Jesus challenges them. He questions their sincerity in asking this question. They weren't actually wanting to know the answer to this. They're trying to trap him with this. And so what does Jesus say? He says, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? You're the religious leaders. You tell me, was he a prophet or was he not? Was he sent from God, or was he just a wild man out in the wilderness, biting the heads off locusts and drinking honey, dressed real weird? You tell me. His challenge was meant to reveal their intentions to the crowd that was all around them. And their response showed that as leaders, they've always acted not for the glory of God, nor for the sanctity of the people of Israel, but for their own status. They have taken and usurped the authority as leaders in God's people for themselves and their own purposes. So, as they consider this, Was John's ministry from heaven? Did God send him? Was he the forerunner that Scripture prophesied? Or was it from men? Was he a rogue? Did he do his own thing, teach for his own reasons? Jesus' implication is very clear. You know where my authority comes from. You know who I am. But just as you would not accept him or his teaching, you'll never accept mine. You will never accept the truth of who I am as the Messiah. And just a brief reminder of who John was. To the leaders of Israel, they disapproved of him because he humiliated them the same way Jesus did. Anytime they challenged him, he just as quickly, just as fluently in the scriptures put them to shame. But who was John? Well, Isaiah 40 prophesies of him. And the Gospels confirm that the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh, was John the Baptist. Isaiah 40 verses 30 through 8 prophesied his ministry. John 1 verses 6 through 8 reveals the importance of him as the one who witnesses to the light of Christ. And in verses 19 through 23 of John 1, John explains in his own words who he is, quoting Isaiah 40 about himself, saying, I am a voice crying in the wilderness. The religious leaders knew who John was. They knew where he got his authority. And yet they rejected it. And then Matthew even records in chapter 3 that John's ministry was a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 40 to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of Yahweh himself in the form of Messiah Jesus. And so in response to Jesus' challenge in verses 5-7, through they feign ignorance. They don't have a choice. They know the Old Testament law well enough to know that if they say he's from God, 
but they rejected him. They've rejected a prophet, and they stand in condemnation for how they treated him under Old Testament law. They also know that if they say he is a man, the things he was doing and saying as a clear fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament means they are still condemned because it was such a clear testimony of who John was as the forerunner of the Messiah. And so they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And so they feign ignorance. We don't know. But that's not all we need to note there. Look at their blinded reasoning. Notice how they missed the point of Jesus' question, though. Their their reasoning is not necessarily wrong on a basic level. It's wrong on a moral level, but notice where their focus is. It's on their reputation. Jesus put them between this rock and a hard place. Their options are limited, and none of them brings up the idea of, well, what is actually true? Should we not submit to that? Their status is the first thing on their minds and the only thing they're thinking about at this moment. They're not concerned with truth, they're concerned with reputation, which is revealed in the next thought. Their misplaced fear, their motivation. They have a misplaced fear that is made even more clear by the end of the following parable where they fear the people and their retaliation rather than, what does Solomon say is the beginning of knowledge? The fear of the Lord. They fear the people when they should be fearing God. And in light of the authority questions, the one who's standing right in front of them. And so, in verse 8, Jesus rejects them. He turns them down. He says, you didn't answer me, I'm not going to answer you. But he does answer their question. Look at verse 8. Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Just shuts down the conversation. It's like, done. Dialogue off. And he just shifts and turns to the people and answers the question to the people instead. Look at the text. See that transition from verse 8 to verse 9. And Jesus said to them, the leaders, Neither will I tell you, the leaders, by what authority I do these things. Verse 9, and he began to tell the people this parable. And this is designed by Jesus to answer the question as clearly as possible in an analogical parable for the people to understand Jesus is proclaiming who he is and where he gets his authority. A man planted a vineyard, God. The people know immediately what is being talked about. Jesus is using an analogy of his authority from redemptive history to set up the context. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 5 with me. The first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 5 are known as the song of the vineyard. This is the first thing that would have popped into the people's heads. And the leaders, too. Isaiah 5, starting in verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then... He hoped for it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. So now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I hoped for it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also command the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. 
Thus he hoped for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. The vineyard is a picture of Israel, the vine grower, the actual vineyard owner is God. The tenants were those that God had set up as those in charge of the spiritual growth of his people. And so just as the vineyard did not produce good fruit, the tenants are the ones that were held responsible for the lack of good produce. The tenants had grown into this mindset of entitlement. They had worked the vineyard. They had taken in the harvest. They had done everything for this vineyard. It must then be theirs. But the work they did was produce worthless produce. They did not work the vineyard as they should have. They did not do it as God had commanded. They did it in their own authority. And so when the harvest time came, back in Luke 20, verse 10, at harvest time, the owner of the vineyard sent a slave to the vine growers. He's looking to see what produce there is that the vineyard has given. Are they taking care of my vines? Can they produce the fruit that they owe me as the owner of this vineyard? This time is a symbol of when the grapes would be ripe, when they would be harvested, when the wine would be being made. It's a declaration of God's omniscience. It's his working out of his own sovereignty and providence in real time, and a foreshadowing of what was to come, what had happened, and what was about to happen in Luke's gospel. In Luke 19, Jesus says this, for the days will come when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of visitation. The harvest time came and the owner of the vineyard wanted what was rightfully his. The vineyard did not produce it. The vine growers did not give it. And so the vineyard will be destroyed. It will be scraped clean and restarted. There will be a stump for Jesse, and the church will be grafted in. It is the providence of God at the right time, seeking what he is owed. But think also of the context of the week we are in in this passage. This whole week, the leaders of the people are trying day after day after day after day after day multiple times in a day to try and grab Jesus and kill him. But they can't. They've tried for three years at different times to grab him and kill him. But they can't. Why? Because the providence of God has set a specific day, a specific time when that would happen. All of Luke is looking forward to that moment from chapter 2, before Jesus is born, all the way to the point when he is killed, the gospel is looking there. Knows it's going to happen, pointing to it happening, but it will only happen once God allows it. At a specific time, at the expected time, the owner of the vineyard is requesting the produce. And it is only at that specific time then that Christ will be the one who will be able to give it. Who are the servants that are sent? This is where we have the redemptive history played out. All of the servants represent the prophets of God in the Old Testament. 
The prophets were sent time and time and time again to Israel. And Israel time and time and time again rejected them. Sure, there were times where Isaiah lived with Hezekiah and Hezekiah listened to the word of the Lord. Where he took seriously the law of God and the people of Israel would live in righteousness for a time. That never lasted. It never lasted. Matthew 23, in the same week, Jesus also says this concerning Jerusalem. He says, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. This was such the character of Israel that the prophets of God were stoned and killed and when they came with the message of God, the character of Israel would not allow them in, would not allow them to exercise the authority and the message God had sent them with but would reject them, shame them, humiliate them, and oftentimes kill them. So what's the last resort? Three times, the vineyard owner sends servants. And so the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? His final deliberation, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. The coming of Jesus was that final offer of grace to the people of Israel, to the leaders of Israel. And they rejected him soundly. This was the last resort still hopeful that his tenants would acknowledge his authority and accept their responsibility, the owner sent his only son. But what did they do? Look back at our passage. Verse 14, When the vine growers saw him, they were reasoning with one another. That sounds familiar. Huh. Sounds like verses 5 and 6. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the elders of the people and the high priests, they reasoned among themselves. Same root word. There's a scheming going on. How can we keep this for ourselves? How can we make this our own? How can we keep from having to give up what we want so desperately? And so they reason amongst themselves, what to do. Jesus uses a play on words in this parable. Verse 15, They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Verse 15 and verse 19 have two very similar words. A laying of hands used. In verse 15, they threw him out. In Greek, is the same as laying hands on somebody. The difference being, the beginning of the word is a different preposition. The preposition merely giving emphasis to the final action drawn. In verse 15, they threw him out. In verse 19, what were they trying to do? They were trying to lay hands on him. There's a play on words here that Luke is drawing out from the parable that Jesus has just spoken. Jesus is literally prophesying what they're about to try to do to him in two minutes. In the parable, and then ultimately also 
in life, the religious leaders, the vine growers, the tenants, seize the Son of God, the Son of the vineyard, and they kill Him. They cast Him out from the vineyard, the rightful inheritance that He was owed, and they slaughter Him. Because they wanted to keep it for themselves. They rejected His authority, which meant they had only one option, and that was to rid themselves of Him. Look at the second half of verse 15. See Jesus' question. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And here is the the horrific consequence, the horror of rejecting Jesus' authority. God will replace those who reject His authority over His people. The frame of the house has no say in what the foundation is and how it will be laid. The frame of the house has no say in the placement or the position of the cornerstone, the foundation stone. And every part of a structure after that that is laid on that foundation has its position determined by that cornerstone. And so any piece of the structure that rejects the placement of the stone rejects its own placement on that foundation. And so Jesus' final question comes rhetorically. The answer is clear. There is no other option for the owner of the vineyard. He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And how do the people respond? May it never be. It's the most emphatic way of saying, no, this can't be the reality. Paul uses it throughout all of Romans and some of his other letters as the strongest, most emphatic way of saying, never. And the response of the people here is, may it never be. They realize what is happening. They know, they see what Jesus has just proclaimed in the parable. They understand. The authority Jesus has is that of the vineyard owner's son. When the people reject his authority, they themselves will be destroyed. When the leadership reject him, they will be destroyed and replaced. And so here, in the response of the people, in their, their horrified response, there's an example of even the influence of the Jewish leadership, whether, whether good or bad. But just as the leaders of the people were unable to receive the truth of the authority and position of Jesus as God's Son, as the Messiah, the people also were unable to receive the indictment of the Messiah against their leaders, against the temple, against their system. And the response to that is even more simple. Jesus demonstrates his authority from Scripture as the cornerstone. The authority of Christ is given to him by the foundation setter. Jesus is using another word picture to show where he gets his authority. He's quoting Psalm 118. His authority is given to him by the foundation setter. And woe to those who reject and usurp that authority. The people knew the consequence of sin. The leaders knew the consequence of rejecting Christ's authority. God's authority. In the same way that a child knows there will be consequences for disobedience. You need to do X, Y, and Z. Growing up, my father would always give us lists on Wednesdays just to kind of give my, my mom a time to be able to rest 
and not have to deal with telling us how, how to do everything all at once constantly. And so he would give us a list that would take us hours to complete. We knew the consequences of not completing that list. But, being a young Joel, guess how often I did that list? I knew the consequences. But my response was always the same as the people. Uh-uh, don't, <laughs> I don't need a spanking. I'll be fine, I'll do it now. Too late. You had the opportunity. It is an instance of the folly and stupidity of sinners that they proceed and persevere in their sinful ways, though at the same time they have a foresight and dread of the destruction that is at the end of those ways. Matthew Henry. An instance of the folly and stupidity of sinners. It's a Romans 1 issue. Mankind, due to sin, blinds himself to what truth is. I don't want truth. I don't want what the authority of God means in my life. I will not accept that. I will not build my life on the foundation stone of Christ. I will do whatever I please, whatever makes me feel good, whatever is most comfortable for me. That is the maxim of the life without Christ. And it leads only to destruction. Notice that the stone that was rejected became the chief cornerstone. This stone, rejected by the builders, was set up as the chief cornerstone by who? By God. By the Lord. Spurgeon remarks that the stone was rejected not by unskilled workers, but by those who were professed and hired Builders, which makes the rejection of the stone that much worse. However, that stone was then taken by the builder and was exalted to the place of chief cornerstone. So rejected, and that by the builders, and to the lowest estate, and from the lowest estate exalted to the chiefest place of all, and that by God himself. The rejection of Christ by man only makes the glory and the exaltation that he receives at the hand of his Father that much more glorious. That much better that much more authoritative. Where is that authority in your life? Does Christ have control of your life? You live by your means. You allow life to, to cause anxiety, to make you worry. Have you set yourself firmly up on the foundation stone, living in His authority, trusting in Him? Have you been built on that foundation? The stone that the builders rejected has become that chief corner stone. Anyone built on that stone will not waver. In the Old Testament, the vine was the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, the church has been grafted in through Christ. That is a glorious reality of the hope we have because of the sacrifice of the Son. But notice still the horror of what befalls those who reject Him. Those who fall on the stone will be broken to pieces, and on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. There is no defeating the stone. You will either be founded on it, or it will be stomped on top of you. 
An old Jewish proverb, a rabbinic proverb once said that when you take a clay pot and you drop it on a stone, the pot breaks. But if you take a stone and you drop it on the clay pot, the, the pot breaks. What is your foundation in life? It was God who set up that cornerstone. It was God who chose Abraham. It was God who chose Moses. It was God who chose Joshua and Saul and David and Solomon. It was God who chose Nebuchadnezzar. It was God who chose and sent John as the forerunner. It was God who sent Jesus, His only beloved Son. It was God who chose his people. How dare we reject his authority? When was he who chose us from before the beginning? There is no salvation, no foundation to life apart from Christ. And so this, the punishment is always so severe. So we come to verse 19 and the final rejection of the leader's of Jesus. It is intriguing how much Luke showcases their blindness in this passage. Jesus is barely hiding anything. Normally when he tells a parable, he's trying to hide some meaning that, that will be clear from the context in a narrative to those who would later read it. He's not hiding anything here. He's using clear analogies from Scripture to point to exactly who the leaders are and where he derives his own authority from. It's eminently clear from the parable that Jesus is speaking about them. And so what do they do? Exactly what he said they would. Where before they, they schemed together, and tried to hide their intentions, tried to find that medium ground that would not get them stoned by the people and not get them humiliated by Jesus in front of them again, they now very, very intentionally are looking for ways to grab hold of the Son of God and kill Him. So what do they do? Immediately following this parable, they do what any rational human being would do. They look for a way to immediately perform the act they were just prophetically condemned for doing. But they still feared the people. Because the providence of God had not yet allowed the fullness of time to be complete. It was not yet the right time for the Son to be taken. God ordained that perfect time, that perfect week. Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The forerunner said that in John 1. And this week shows it clearly. God ordained a perfect time. And it was only a few days away, but it was not yet arrived. They could not enact their plan to take Jesus because God would not allow it. The people did not have this kind of authority or power over the leaders, and Luke is clear that the leaders certainly did not have that kind of authority or power over Jesus. They desperately wanted to exercise this authority, but they did not possess it. It was not theirs. God chose a people for himself and set up leaders over them. And when the time came for them to produce the worship and the glory that he rightly deserved, he sent his servants, the prophets, to remind the people. But time and time again, the prophets were mistreated and sent away empty-handed. And with each successive prophet, the rejection of the message and the authority from God grew stronger. The wickedness of the people increased generation after generation after generation. 
And in the last full measure of His grace, God sent His beloved Son, His unique Son on His behalf to recall His people to Himself, but they rejected the authority of the Son as well. And seeking to obtain it for themselves, they killed the Son of God. What then must God do? He tore down and destroyed the leaders of his people and gave the inheritance to others whom he had chosen, setting up the rejected son as the chief cornerstone of his people, causing some to stumble, some to be crushed as they stubbornly clung to the rejection of the authority of God's son. Beloved, do not be crushed by the stone. Where do you stand in the church this morning? Does Christ have authority in your life? The hope we have from Paul. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Have you ceded your life to Christ? Have you recognized the authority of the Creator over your life? Have you committed that to His Son to live for Him, to live in a way that glorifies God, which is the only way to live pleasing to Him? If you have not, do so. The glory of living on the foundation of Christ. The hope we have is that in eternity we will be with Him. When we have been secured to the foundation, it will not be moved and we will not fall from it. The building that is built on the foundation of the cornerstone cannot be torn down. And that is the hope that we as the people of God have. Fathers, we... Consider the glories of not only our future hope, but also your faithfulness and promises to your people. As we consider your authority in our lives, Lord, we we praise you. We thank you for everything that you have given us, especially for the sacrifice that your Son made on our behalf. We praise you that we have the hope of being built on Christ. That we can be the chief. That He will be our chief cornerstone and that we will have a firm foundation on Him. Lord, glorify Yourself through us this week. Help us to live in light of the full and ultimate authority that You have in our lives. Submitting everything to You. Trusting You and living according to what your word says. It's in your name we pray.